Last week, we considered what on earth are we doing here. That was our subject. And we considered and thought about the fact that we are here for the purposes of God, corporately and individually, and that we each have things that he wants us to fulfill, tasks that he has for us. We are, here, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared in advance that we should walk in them. So he's got the list of tasks for each and every one of us to fulfill. Just get on God's task list. And uh, you won't go far wrong. But also, corporately, we have a task that God has given to humanity, which was to fill the earth with his glory, to rule over it on his behalf. And we saw how that task was corrupted through the fall. But through the church, God is still wanting that task to be fulfilled. The work will be completed at the return of Christ. But in the meantime, we're called to be his glory carriers to fulfill the good works that he's prepared in advance for us. And we are also, in addition, called to see his purposes fulfilled in the context, in the place where he has put us through a local body. In our case, Beverly in the surrounding area. So that this town and God's desire for this town is that it becomes filled with his glory. This week, I want us to begin to look at models of the church what the church should be like, what the New Testament pictures the church to be like. And we're going to begin with the image of the temple. So if you turn with me, we're going to read three short scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 16. 1 Corinthians three sixteen, which says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God? And the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 6.19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? And then Ephesians chapter 2. And verse 21. We'll start with verse 19, actually, because otherwise I'm halfway through a sentence. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing up into a holy temple in the Lord. And so three times we see this image of the body, the church, the people of God as a temple that Paul is is reminding us. The context of the first of the scriptures we read read there, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, concerns those who build the church. And Paul is stressing that, that for those who build the church, those who are responsible for making this thing happen, their work will be tested to see if it's gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. And he goes on to say that the church is the temple in which the Spirit of God dwells. And we'll come back to this whole image of the church being the temple in which the Spirit of God dwells. But his first warning is, for any in leadership across the church of Jesus Christ, they have responsibility, and God will ultimately hold them to account. In the second scripture, the context is, is, is sexual immorality. And Paul reminds us that it's not only the church that's the temple, but it's that my body is a temple. 
In other words, it does matter how I behave and what I do with this body. Because otherwise I bring dishonor to God. And in the third scripture, Paul is emphasizing the unity of the church. And in the context of Ephesians 2, he's saying the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. And he stresses that we together are now being built into a temple, which again is a dwelling place for God's spirit. And so in the remainder of our time together, I want to explore what Paul is actually saying here and the implications for us individually and corporately of being the temple of God. And in order to understand what Paul is saying, we need to go back to the Old Testament to explore the background um, and purpose of the temple. The roots of the temple, of course, are in the tabernacle, which we come across in Exodus chapters 25 through to 30. The temple is really a stone-built version of the tabernacle. And you'll remember, if you've read Exodus 25 to 30, that God went into great details about how this tabernacle should be constructed, what materials should be used, what furniture should be within it. And then if you read the actual construction of the temple in Exodus 26:40, there is a phrase that's repeated throughout these chapters, as the Lord commanded Moses. It comes time and time again, as the Lord. Build it, as the Lord commanded Moses. And Moses built it, as the Lord commanded him. And so there's very much a detail of getting it right and getting it just as God had had instructed. In other words, the, the construction of the tabernacle was according to the plan of God. And Moses is constructed exactly to the plan. Why? Because as we read in Hebrews 8, 5, the tabernacle represented heaven. It represented the dwelling place of God on the earth. And therefore, Moses had to be precise in the way he did it because it was such a powerful representation of the presence of God. There is much we can learn from studying the tabernacle. But the following are a number of elements that we can glean for our purposes this morning. In fact, I could probably do a whole series on it, but we're not going to do that right now. Or else we'll be here till tea time. Firstly, the tabernacle was the place where the glory of God was displayed. It was there in the Holy of Holies where God's physical presence was shown in supernatural light. It was the place where humanity, represented by the priest, could enter in and commune with the living God. It was that place of encounter between humanity and God. Secondly, the Holy of Holies could only be entered by blood sacrifice, and that only once per year. In other words, there was a requirement for sin to be dealt with before humanity could come before the living God. Thirdly, it was the place of individual and corporate worship. And when the people of God camped, the tabernacle was in the center. All the tribes had their allocated positions around it. And there rising above it was the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. A visual reminder that God was in their midst. And the tabernacle thus was at the heart of their corporate worship, their national worship. Of course, when the temple was built by Solomon, the pattern for the temple was the same as the tabernacle. With the Holy of Holies as as the central point of the worship of God. And in it, of course, the only object was the Ark of the Covenant, which contained uh, three items. What are the three items? Come on, remind me. The rod, Aaron's rod that budded. Pot of manna. Ten Commandments. Well done. Top of the class. And these three items represent God as the source of our provision. 
the source of our behavior or law, and God as the source of life for the people of God. And so all of them in themselves represent that encounter with God that the priest had when he went into that holy place. And then on top of the ark was the mercy seat with the cherubim covering it with their wings. And it was there that the presence of God dwelt and where the priest, through bringing in the blood of the sacrifice of atonement, encountered God. And if he came in empty-handed, he would have, been, would have been struck dead in the presence of a holy God. The fact that he brought blood into that place demonstrated that his sin had been atoned for. It had been dealt with through a substitutionary animal that had died in his place. And it was in that place that the priest could make atonement for the nation and intercede on their behalf. When the people of Israel were taken captive to Babylon, what happened to the ark? The answer is, we don't know. Some people think Jeremiah hid it in caves underneath the temple. There are many caves underneath the, the temple mount, still, many of which are still being explored. Others think Jeremiah hid it in Petra, in Jordan. A third theory it was take, was that it was taken to Egypt and down into Africa. And there is a whole tribe in Zimbabwe who are 50% Levi because the Levites went all the way down into Africa. The reality is we don't know. We don't know what happened to the ark. Whatever happened to it, when the temple was reconstructed after the exile, the Holy of Holies was empty. The glory of God never returned. And for this reason, amongst others, the people of Israel are still in exile, because the glory of God has not returned with them. And this shaped their national messianic expectations, They looked for a Messiah who would throw off the rule of the pagan oppressors, who would restore and rebuild the temple, who would preside over the nation and over the return of the glory of God to his temple. And if you read the book of Ezekiel, you'll find in chapter 10, the glory of the Lord departing from the temple. And that's what happened to exile. But in Ezekiel 43, there is the prophecy of the glory of the Lord returning to the temple. And despite that prophecy and that of Haggai, in Haggai 2.7, the glory of the Lord has never returned to the temple following the exile. Now turn with me to Luke in chapter 19. Verse 41. And when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make, make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave you in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying, To them, it's written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And in this passage, we see Jesus prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple, and then acting in judgment against the temple. And the reason he gives is that they didn't recognize the time of their visitation. You see, in a very real way, the prophecy of Ezekiel had its first fulfillment in the arrival of Jesus in the temple. The glory of God came into the temple, but it was veiled in human flesh. 
And it wasn't recognized by the people. The visitation of God into the temple was missed by those responsible for the temple. And instead they chose to crucify the Son of God. The result of this rejection of Jesus was that the temple was destroyed and the nation scattered. Many of us believe that the temple in Jerusalem will one day be rebuilt. And the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecies of Ezekiel and Haggai will be when Jesus in all his glory returns to earth and walks into that temple. And at that time, we're told in Zechariah 12, 10, the whole nation will look on me whom they've pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. And we see a national revival amongst the people of Israel and a return as they see the glory of God return to his temple. But we live in the interim. As we said last week, we live in the now and not yet of the kingdom of God. Right now, there is no temple in Jerusalem. And even if there was, until the glory of God returns to it in the form of Jesus Christ, worship in the temple will be pointless. At the moment, the temple on earth is the church of Jesus Christ. And we are just as much as the temple of of God as was the temple that was built by Solomon and the temple that was built by Herod. We are the dwelling place of God. On earth. And it was filled with the glory of God on the day of Pentecost. So in what ways are we to function as the temple? Firstly, this is where the glory of God should be displayed. This is the place where the presence of God dwells on earth. And we need to be a church filled with his glory. And this is both on an individual and on a corporate level. On an individual level, my life needs to be set apart so that God can fill it. God doesn't dwell in dirty vessels because he's a holy God. And if there's stuff in my life that prevents the glory of God from filling me, then I need to deal with it so that he can take up residence in every part of me. This is not about being so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. This is about being vessels fit for the residence of the king of kings. And I'm not going to name specifics here, but you know that if there is stuff in you that's making you feel unclean in any way, Deal with it so that your house can be filled with the glory of God. Because if we all get filled with glory, then the church will be filled with glory. On a corporate level, when we come together, ready and prepared to worship him, we will encounter him by the Spirit. I would love it if one Sunday morning the glory of God so filled this place that we couldn't stand to minister just as it was in 2 Chronicles 4 when they dedicated the temple then the glory of God so fills the place that we're just on our faces. This isn't about singing songs that make us feel better or give us an emotional high, but rather it's a truth encounter with the living God that brings the glory of God into the house. Secondly, going back to the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies could only be entered by blood sacrifice, and that only once a year. In other words, there was a requirement for sin to be dealt with before humanity could come before the living God. And in the same way, our access into the presence of God is only on the basis of the cross. Yes, we can come boldly, we're told in Hebrews 10:19, But you've got to read the rest of Hebrews to get to that point of coming boldly. And the rest of Hebrews is about the sacrifice that Jesus has made and has gone before us into the heavenly place to give us access. And that's all because of what he did. 
And we must never forget that we come on the basis of grace and mercy, pour, the, the grace and mercy of God poured out for us through the sacrifice of Jesus. And that's why we've put communion back in the center of our worship. It's the reminder week by week of all that is available to us only through the blood of Jesus. And when we come into the presence of God with the reminder before us of what access to God cost, then we can't help but be grateful for all that he's done for us. And it's then that we encounter God in all his glory and it can intercede on behalf of the world. See, this is part of our calling. A priest wasn't just to encounter God. A priest was to bring the the needs and the concerns of the world around them, of the nation, into the presence of God. And as we encounter God's presence, we represent the world before him. And as we go out, we have the chance to represent God before the world. Then as glory carriers, we can take his glory into every part of society. Thirdly, in their encampment, the people of God position themselves in relation to the presence of God. How do we position ourselves in relation to the church of Jesus Christ? Is it the center of our thinking or as an add-on? For the people of Israel in the wilderness, the tabernacle was always in view. Is the presence of God always in our eye line? Or do we lay aside all else? And do we lay aside all else to seek that presence? There are some other things that flow out of Paul's teaching in the New Testament about the the temple, us being the temple. And I just want to touch on those for a moment. Firstly, as I said earlier, Paul warns the builders of the house of God to be careful how they build. In other words, those of us who are leaders in the temple of God need to be careful, because one day we will give an account for what we build and the way we build. In one sense, all of us need to take note of that, because we all have a role and responsibility for building the house of God. But Paul is especially talking to leaders there. So for those who lead, remember to build with gold, silver, and precious stones, and not wood, hay, and stubble. Or else he'll huff, and he'll puff, and he'll blow your house down. Secondly, from the 1 Corinthians 6, Paul warns us to be careful about how we live our lives and what we do with our bodies. He goes on to say, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. The notion of not belonging to ourselves needs to get deep into our spirit so that we cease to live selfish, self-centered lives, but rather that live lives that are lived to the glory of God. So honor God with your bodies. Thirdly, from the Ephesians 2.22, we see ourselves being built together into the dwelling place of God by his spirit. And it's out of our relationship, out of our unity, that the Spirit of God comes to dwell in all we do. In Psalm 133, unity is pictured as being the place where the Spirit of God is poured out, like oil and water. Like oil upon the head, running down on the beard, running down on the Aaron's beard, running down to the collar of his robes. It's like the Jew of Hermon. For there the Lord commands the blessing. Unity is so crucial to the blessing of God. And if we want to be blessed, we need to be in that place of unity, unity of heart, unity of spirit, unity with one another, dealing with issues in our relationships, dealing with stuff that stops that unity. For that's where the flow of God's spirit comes. I want us to take us to one more scripture, because I want to conclude with 
this, and it's Ezekiel chapter 47. Then he brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house. That is the temple, of course. Toward the east, for the house faced east, and the water was flowing down from under the right side of the house from the south of the altar. And he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate by way of the, the gate which faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. And when the man went out toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits and he led me through the water, water reaching the ankles. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching to the knees. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through water reaching the loins. Again, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not ford for the water had risen, enough water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. And he said this to me, son of man, have you seen this? He brought me back to the bank of the river. Now when I returned, behold, on the bank of the river, there were very many trees on one side and on the other. Then he said to me, these waters go out toward the eastern region and down uh, into the Arabah. Then they go toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. And it will come about that every living creature that swarms in every place and where the river goes will live. And there will be many, very many fish, for these waters go there and the others become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that the fishermen will stand beside it from Engedi to Engelaim. And there they will, there will be a place for the spreading of nets, and their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, very many. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh, they will be left for salt." And by the river on its banks, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. And their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their waters flow from the sanctuary. And their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. I've heard this scripture spoken many times by various charismatic preachers. And they usually stop around verse 6. They talk about... um, jumping in the river and so forth. But to understand it properly, we have to go all the way to verse 12. The vision occurs after the glory of God has returned to the temple. Out from the temple flows this river into the Dead Sea. And the result is that it turns the Dead Sea into one that is vibrant with life. Fish are found in abundance and trees and plants grow alongside the banks. And while many have interpreted this vision as as an instruction for us to plunge deeper into the river, which is the Holy Spirit, and that may be a valid reference, I think what is more important here is the result of the river flowing out of the temple. I believe for us it's a reminder that the glory of God or the Spirit of God is not given for us to frolic about in some self-indulgent party. The Spirit of God is poured out to bring healing to the nations. The result of our activities in the temple of God should be to bring life to that which was dead, to bring fruitfulness to that which was dried up. And it's time for us to be the temple of God in such a way that the presence of God can flow out of us and into a needy world. 
We need to see the dead brought to life and the sick healed. We need to see the salvation of God poured into a dry and desolate land. And our land needs it like it never has today. So let's, let's indulge all we can of the Spirit of God, but not for any selfish reasons, that we might flow out and be the healing of the nation. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you will help us in all of our ways to be the temple of the living God, the place where you dwell, where your presence is, where your glory is seen. But we pray, Lord God, that we might be that in order to be your hand and your arms reaching out to a needy world. And I pray, Lord God, that you will help and encourage us to press on, to go deeper, but Lord, also to remember that we are priests called to intercede on behalf of a needy nation. May your spirit be with us. May your spirit lead us and take us into all that you have for us. And may we indeed be glory carriers in this place where you've put us. Amen.